2: Difficult to keep the line
0: between the past and the present.
3: You believe that someone out of the past can
2: enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us.
1: Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie that we've podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Tasha Robinson and Genevieve Kosky. Scott DeVice is once again absent, having possibly been turned into a malevolent parakeet. In his place, we have Eric Villasboas from Vulture, an animation correspondent and pop culture enthusiast in general. Hi, Eric. Thanks for coming back. Thank you for having me again. In our last episode, we discussed Spirited Away, one of Japanese animator Hayao Miyazaki's best-known films. We're back now to discuss his latest, The Boy and the Heron. This is Miyazaki's follow-up to his 2013 film, The Wind Rises, which he claimed will be his final film. Now he's back with The Boy and the Heron, a film filled with echoes of previous Miyazaki efforts and of elements of his life. Miyazaki is the son of an airplane manufacturer, and with his family, he left Tokyo during World War II. Because his mother suffered from a spinal form or tuberculosis, she spent long stretches in a hospital. That makes it hard not to see The Boy and the Heron as an explicitly autobiographical film, in spite of its fantastical elements. It's the story of a 12-year-old boy named Mahito, who, after losing his mother in a Tokyo hospital fire during World War II, moves to the countryside with his father, who works in manufacturing for the aeronautics industry. There he has trouble fitting in at school and accepting his mother's pregnant younger sister, Natsuko, as his new stepmother. Mahito also notices an attentive heron who draws him into a spirit world. There he searches for Natsuko and meets many wondrous and terrifying creatures. We'll talk about those creatures and more after the break.
0: Mahito. So you made it.
3: Mother. Have a seat.
1: It's this way, Mahito.
0: A lot of strange things happen in this place. I just hope he stays safe.
2: What exactly are you?
3: Ah. Your mother, she's awaiting
1: your rescue. I'll be your guide. So I cut the plot details off pretty early because it (laughs) it gets very uh, complicated from there. So we can get into that a little bit more. But first of all, what what did you think of this film?
3: I feel like I need a maybe half more dozen viewings before I have like a full grasp of this film. Even then maybe I won't it based on our conversation of Spirited Away. It definitely seems to have a similar quality of being sort of dreamlike and fluid and not necessarily having super strong plot moments to grab onto so much as really arresting imagery. Right now I can tell you like six visuals from this movie that I that have stuck with me as far as the story like broadly, hey, look, it's another coming of age narrative. But uh, in terms of like the A to B to C plot progression, you know, it's a little, little murkier. But man, that Heron character design, uh, that, that'll really haunt my dreams for a little, <laughs> little while.
1: Yeah, <laughs> just uh, yeah. human
3: teeth coming out of a, a bird beak and just like, this film does not like birds. And uh, you know, I'm not a big fan <laughs> of birds either. So I think I really, uh, it, at the very least, I uh, connected to it on that level. You thought it didn't like birds? I, I thought the film,
2: the movie loves birds. Like birds are everywhere. Birds are the primary characters in, in most, the majority of the characters. I think there's a difference the between
0: loving to draw birds or depict birds and like liking them as individuals or characters. I, there aren't a lot of pleasant birds in this story or, you know, non deceptive, non help, hateful birds.
3: Yeah. I mean, the the fact that we have at, at least three different types of birds and they're all memorable. You have the heron, of course, you have the pelicans and then you have the parakeets and they all kind of have their own feeling and vibe to them and obviously their own design. Uh, like, yes, obviously, Miyazaki loves like drawing and depicting birds. Hey, they fly. Imagine that. Um, <laughs> but again, we don't necessarily want to talk about uh, this movie or his movies in terms of villains, but uh, all of the birds we encounter are, are pretty jerky uh, to, to some degree or another. There's no horror heroic birds here
1: <laughs> well birds are kind of jerks though i mean yeah. you know anyone who's, who's like <laughs> admired geese and then actually had <laughs> interact it with geese; they're very different. Like what I, you know, I don't know if you ever you seen a swan up close, like just on its own, and those are they're so beautiful and they're they're mean; they're just mean <laughs> animals.
0: So I think there's it's, a little bit of Did you that get close enough that you here. could see whether there were like nostrils and human teeth
1: inside <laughs> like, of I, I don't think I don't think so, but 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 yeah, I, I do think that he's playing with that sort of um attraction slash repulsion we have with birds sometimes. Yeah.
0: I think I'm in the same boat with Genevieve in terms of feeling that I need to watch this movie several more times before I feel like a sense of closeness to it, maybe. Like, there's a lot of spectacle that I really enjoyed seeing. There's a lot of surprises that I really enjoyed experiencing, but I didn't feel an emotional connection to it the way I did instantly with Spirited Away. And I think a lot of that comes down to Mahito being, in many ways, a difficult character, Mm -hmm. a prickly character. Like, fairly early on, he decides that the solution for there being a bird in his vicinity is to figure out a way to kill it. And he's very dogged and and direct and specific about it. You know, uh, where Chihiro, I don't want to dive into connections too early, but part of Chihiro's appeal is that she gets scared. You know, she has her, her doubts and her concerns and, and worries. And there are things that I think young people in particular can relate to while also finding it very appealing when she gets over them. But Mihito's belligerence is is kind of shocking and surprising. His he's just he's not open to any of the experiences that he's going through. And he meets them with violence, which is very surprising in a Miyazaki film. And then he goes through all of these experiences. In just a very, you know, chest thrown forward, uh, kind of glowery kind of way. He he reminds me of like the pugnacious little boy in My Neighbor Tortoreau, except that that pugnacious little boy's pugnaciousness is a comedy element in that movie. And here we're more expected to see him as a hero. This is a boy that, that smashes his own head open. For reasons that are really unclear to me, but it seems maybe to get some bullies into even bigger trouble than they would get into otherwise, or possibly just as an act of self destruction. It's it's a little unclear,
3: or to not have to go back to school. That's how I read it. But yeah, but yeah, it's uh, the motivations of that moment are murky, and which is what makes it so shocking, and the fact that it's like it happens kind of in silence. Mm -hmm. which the way that silence is utilized in this movie also struck me, but we can get more into that. Finish your thought, Tasha.
0: Yeah, there's just, there's a lot going on here that doesn't parse cleanly for me. But then, you know, I, the first time I saw Spirited Away, I was very drawn to Chihiro and her arc. And then I considered a, a lot of what happened in the middle sections of the movie kind of difficult to track in terms of in, intention and emotion. And, you know, as I said in the first segment, that cleared up a lot the more I, I watched it. So, I, I I mean, I think in the end, it just kind of comes down to getting another completed movie from Miyazaki at this stage of his life is such a gift. I'm so glad he was able to finish this. And on the terms that he wanted to finish it on, I'm so glad it's out there. But, I just really feel like I need to watch it some more in order to fully connect with it instead of being kind of a bit overwhelmed by it, by just like how much incident and action and changes and like unlikely developments and big emotions are in this movie.
1: Yeah, I'm glad to hear everyone's a a little baffled by it. Um, (laughs) I'm not
2: not a
0: little
1: baffled by it. I want to hear (laughs) Eric.
2: Yeah, let's hear (laughs) Eric. Yeah, sorry. So I already really love this movie like well, love my it next more thing
1: is, my next thing is like but I also lo- kind of love it but anyway, <laughs> yeah.
2: go, go ahead Eric <laughs> but I so with the caveat that I've seen it now twice I saw it at at New York Film Festival I like squeaked into that you know one of the two screenings that they had and then I saw it again in a, in a press thing like this week I'm like so struck by you know not just the kind of autobiographical elements of it but Mahito really worked for me as a protagonist who you know was raised in You know the highly belligerent environment of japan in the pre-war and world war ii era japan who had just lost his his mother who you know is is clearly going through like all this change and emotional turmoil i i read to drill in on the you know when he smashes a rock against his head like that was like to me it was so clearly like a cry for help and such a and just like this very like it hits in this moment of the movie where, like, you know, he's driven to school by his, like, rich dad, right? Where the other, you know, the other kids at school are kind of like, you know, they're like volunteer laborers, basically. He doesn't have to do that or is that's not expected of him. He's teased at school, you, you know, He and then after that encounter, like, you know, he, it's almost, he's, like, already roughed up. But there's, you get the sense that Hugh needs to be more roughed up. That's how I read that action, right? That he has the sense of like, he needs to prove himself. He needs to, you know, there's like a lot of, you know, there's a lot of like masculinity wrapped up in, in like sort of his arc, both in his belligerence and how like kind of self-destructive it is and what he's going through. So it it's a little bit less baffling because I've seen it a second time. But I think it even after the first viewing, I came away from it thinking like The Wind Rises was a very uneven, or not uneven, but kind of polarizing movie and sort of difficult to parse. Ponyo was made for a, a much younger audience than I was kind of used to from a Miyazaki film, and then before that, you know, Howl's Moving Castle was kind of was not as as sort of clean a narrative as Spirited Away was. Like as we you know we've talked about that being a very clear narrative in a lot of ways. This movie feels more clear and more confident and kind of more assured than either any of those three movies to me. Like in terms of what it's trying to say, and there's a lot of there's a lot of like kind of messiness and sort of like you know in sort of how. It goes about that, but I do. I do think he's sort of Miyazaki is kind of using using this this like you know bo- young boy trying to you know kind of wrestle with all like all these like kind of external forces, and just tell his his sort of coming of age through this through this sort of dreamlike fantasy. That's how I kind of came away from it. It all cohered for me, which and that's why that's why I'm kind of surprised hearing your guys' take. Well,
1: I mean, there's. I'm kind of baffled by some of the things that that we talked about, like like the head smashing, but I, I, more because it's like mysterious than wrong or, or out of place in some ways. But I mean, to me, I don't know that much about Miyazaki's life beyond what I just mentioned and what I've read in interviews and and profiles. And there's certainly ways this does not square up exactly with his life. I mean, his, his mother was in the hospital for a long time, but she did not die. But even when you know, I don't know exactly what's going on in terms of like how it relates to its creator's own life. It feels really personal. Like, I think I think you just kind of pick up on how deeply personal this film is to Miyazaki, particularly when, I don't know if we want to see Mahito as, as a, a stand in necessarily, but when you get around to the character of the granduncle, who's mm-hmm. this you know, creator, who's you know, assembles the universe in, in, in ways that, that he hopes makes sense, that he needs to pass this on to somebody else because his time's coming to an end. I mean, it's not really that heavily disguised what that's, what, what that's uh, kind of uh, connecting to.
2: He's got like 13 blocks. Miyazaki, this is Miyazaki's 12th movie. If you count his TV series, you know, who, who knows yeah. like how he's counting. But it, right. that's kind of, that always kind am, of cool. amused me both the first yeah. time and the second time.
1: Yeah, I didn't make that connection, but yeah, yeah, that's that's good. I mean, it's a movie. And he's got a very
0: fraught relationship with his son that's been yeah. very public in terms mm-hmm. of his son's creative output and and Miyazaki's feeling about it and where they do and don't connect on art. I think that that's working into it pretty blatantly as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a film. I I saw this on screener, which is I and I hope to see it on the big screen first but i'm looking i already have tickets to go see it at the, at the cisco center here when it when it opens and I, i'm very much looking forward to this revisiting revisiting this film i haven't put together like a best of the year list but i have a hard time not seeing this make it making it on there somewhere
0: i just wish mojito was a more dynamic character you know with a lot of the things that we're talking about you know Kiki's arc is a voyage of self-discovery that takes her through a lot of very visible personal changes Chihiro's arc takes her through a lot of personal changes Ponyo's arc takes her through a lot of decision making and uh, like physically changing back and forth from one species to another on a regular basis like a lot of his films are just about you know the the coming of age narrative is about what you find along the way, and how it alters you. And here, I think Mahito ultimately becomes less belligerent. And certainly there are moments towards the end where he shows that he's self-aware and that, he, that he's become more self-aware as a part of his journey here. But I just don't feel like he goes through the kinds of, of important character changes that, for instance, Chihiro goes through I wish that there was more of a sense of how who he is at the end is different from who he was at the beginning.
1: Well, in your list of coming-of-age stories, I heard a lot of hers, and this is a boys coming-of-age story. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think it's certainly speaking very broadly and, and not really even pay attention to the cultural and uh, generational differences. But, you know, girls in stories and in life are perhaps allowed to be a little more expressive of of, of changes and feelings than than boys are. And sometimes boy feelings get turned into belligerence <laughs> and violence and in ways that, that are kind of ugly, which I think is depicted pretty well here. And I
2: wonder if Mahito is supposed to be here, we're supposed to kind of read him as a stand-in for Miyazaki, like how how guarded was he? There's many parts of this movie where it feels very unguarded. It feels like, you know, those connections feel very obvious They and they feel very personal. And at the same time, it's sort of like, you know, if is was there like a, a subconscious element of Miyazaki thinking like, you know, I'd, you know, I'd rather not put Mahito through something that he might put Chihiro through, something that he might put Kiki's through or, or kind of dramatizing it in that way. Maybe he would put that, you know, up, kind of apply elements of that character, that character beat to the granduncle or something, something like that. I don't know. Like, I th- I think, you know, in the sense that we are comparing and contrasting, I think that's a, that is a big one because I don't, at the end of something like Kiki's, I have a very strong sense that her her arc is a part of her journey as a person, as, you know, as a character is done. You know, she's kind of moving on to another stage of her life. And at the end of The Boy and the Heron, like, Mahito still has a lot of growing up to do he's endured this fantasy dream adventure that helps him kind of like wrestle with the fact that his family has changed and that his mom has passed, but that doesn't feel over, right? Like it feels very, the ending feels very open-ended. I think that's why the ending is so kind of, it's almost, it's almost short. It's like, you know, we, you know, two years later, we went back to Tokyo. Like, I feel like he has more life to live. And I wonder if like an element of that is, is kind of why the character beats don't map in the same way that his other movies do.
3: Yeah, I mean we're we're talking about it as a as a coming of age narrative, and it is to a degree, but it's a, a little bit of an inversion, I think, of how we often talk about that, or at least how we were talking about it in regards to to Chihiro, where like Mahito, like he begins so closed off, and it's kind of a story of learning to be cared for, to allow himself to be loved and cared for by someone else, working through his grief in order to be loved, you know, by this this new surrogate mother figure and just Kind of opening himself up to the world. It's he's going from closed off to, to opened up, and it's almost like a adult to child transition. Like it's not quite that mm-hmm. clean, but it's uh, it does feel like a little bit of an inversion of say Chihiro, like growing up by you know visiting kindness upon other people and and learning to to put that out into the world, whereas Mahito is kind of learning to accept. Kindness or or just like attention from 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 the world. I think that's
0: all true. Like everything that everybody has said is true, and I, I think that these are all very good points. I do wish I felt it a little more in the filmmaking. I think that the moment where Mahito is able to call someone else mother is kind of a, a breaking down of his emotional barriers and is a big moment. But compared to the moment where you know Chihiro embraces Haku and and huge tears, like head sized tears, are rolling out of her eyes, it just doesn't. I think Keith is exactly right about gender being an issue here, and I think that the idea of Miyazaki identifying very much with this boy. And how he expresses emotions, as opposed to him being a more fictional character, is is an important thing. Again, I'm, I'm less talking about the structure of the movie, which I think you're all right about, and just more, I guess, my emotional response to how it's presented
3: boys, gross, There. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I actually agree with you there. Um, <laughs> yeah. Also, yes, parakeets. Likewise. likewise. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Like, we gotta- In the
3: smallest
0: detail way, can we just talk about the fact that, and going back to Miyazaki doesn't like
2: birds, there's I, bird I, shit I, all over this movie. Yeah, uh, okay, I, I disagree that Miyazaki doesn't like birds. I, I feel like he doesn't animate I'm anything. I'm
0: presenting this as, uh, you know, e- exhibit 12 in the no no Eric, Miyazaki just doesn't like birds uh, case that the two of you are, are forming. Like, I'm just coming in amicus curiae. Like, I, I don't really have a dog in this hunt or a bird, as it were. But if I was to provide any evidence for the fact that Genevieve is correct about this, it's the fact that these are not clean little cartoon birds. They shit absolutely everywhere, and every scene that's full of birds is also just full of bird poop. And the characters get smeared with bird poop so quickly in this movie. There's a moment. There's a moment where the heron comes through the, uh, a window. Yes, and I love that scene. It's it's spooky and nightmarish and and cool and weird. But the somebody, the, well, possibly the the same people that are normally engaged in painting marbling into meat, just painted a gigantic poop smear down the side of the building to indicate this this bird you know, how unclean this bird is, it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't know about the whole don't shit where you eat thing. Uh, <laughs> and it just it cracks me up. It, cra- it cracks me up
2: in general, just how much bird poop there is in this movie. I love it. I love every scene with the bird poop, I have to say, like, I not even, <laughs> I'm not even joking. Like, no, no, seriously, like, sincerely, I think that it is evidence that he is like, sort of fascinated and enamored with like, you know, animating the actions that a, that an actual animal would take in this kind of fantastical world. And, like, taking that to, like, you know, the the nth degree, the nth degree is that every background, every painted background, a bunch of scenes, like, will have, like, just characters getting covered in poop. Like, I, I think it's both funny that, that there's a humor element to it. And then there's also, like, you know, even in that scene with the heron, you know, calling to Mahito and it being nightmarish, like, I love that there's a smear at the end. Like, I think it showed, I don't see it as, like, Miyazaki is is calling out how disgusting these things are. <laughs> he's, like, he's actually, like, really into the, the natural world, how interesting it is. And I don't think that he would spend a whole movie covering his movie in bird it if he was not actually kind of into it or into the humor yeah. of it, right? Like into, into the varied reactions, you know, and I think it actually, it actually ties back thematically to at the end of the movie where, you know, Mahito, he, he rejects, you know, being sort of in charge of the world in charge of this fantasy world and kind of being its overseer, keeping the blocks, you know, and and everything where they are. He kind of prefers the world that is messy and full of, like, murderous, you know, intent and, like, and, and probably full of bird shit. And I think that that's, like, actually... I'm, I'm over here, like, defending bird shit like I've, for, for several minutes. But, like, I'm actually very
1: into the bird shit. This feels like a good place to break and move on to connections where no doubt we'll be talking about uh, bird poop some more. Um, we'll be right back after the break. A gray heron once told me that all gray herons are liars. So is that the truth or a lie? A right. <clears throat> Now let's head for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I mean, let's start with the most obvious one, which is these are both stories about kids drawn into magical worlds against their will and having transformative experiences there. We touched on it a little bit, but these are different sorts of transformative experiences, aren't they?
3: Yeah. And as far as being drawn into the world against their will. I mean, Mahito, he's very curious about the tower even before he sees Natsuko go and kind of follows her. So, Mahito has a little, I think, more agency in this situation. He's also just, he's older, you know, and comes across as, a, as an older character, whereas, or I kind of noted this in the first episode, but like one of the things about that opening that's so striking to me is the way that her parents are behaving compared to her as they are like going f- into this world, you know. And it's it it feels so wrong for the parents to be the one that are just like let's keep going, let's keep going, like like ugh, like barreling ahead. And it's like a almost like juvenile behavior on on their part. And Shakira was like no 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 let's let's stay back. And I think that like helps set the kind of unsettling nature of this transition in, into this other world. Something just feels off about it. That something is affecting her, uh, her parents even before they start eating the food and turning into pigs but yeah the the world that Mojito goes into is also even more chaotic and scary <laughs> than than the world of the spirits like like the spirit world like we talked about how it's you know kind of got a fluid ever shifting nature but there is just some sort of consistency like this is a bathhouse for spirits like that is like what this place is it's kind of unclear what the tower what the world of the tower is or it's like lots of different things which is kind of what is is revealed to us so but there's not necessarily like a purpose it's not like a purpose driven place the way that the the spirit bathhouse is and I think that makes it even scarier to me anyway on this viewing
0: I think I disagree. I think Mm -hmm. the tower feels a lot more purposeful than the the spirit bathhouse because the spirit bathhouse, its purpose is to be a business. Its purpose is to, you know, bathe spirits and make money. And the reason it feels comparatively uh, purposeless, as far as the protagonist goes, is because it's indifferent to Chihiro. It's not there because of her or, or for her. She's a completely foreign element in it, whereas the tower has kind of a, an awareness and a malign intent from the beginning. It, it wants Mahito. It wants someone to take over, and it seems to want it on specific terms. And all of these individuals that Mahito meets have agendas for him. Like, some of them are as simple as, I would like to eat you, but it it seems like he meets individual after individual who they have something in mind that they want to get out of him or force him into – Whereas, you know, Chihiro, there's sort of a feeling that if she didn't want to rescue her family so badly, she could probably just stand on the sidelines and nobody but Yubaba would, would care. Like that place is just not about her. And the tower is in many ways about Mahito. But that said, I, I want to pull back to your thought about Chihiro getting dragged into the, into the magical realm as opposed to Mahito like striding into it. I think an interesting point of comparison there is that the whole beginning of Spirited Away is about Chihiro's family dragging her places. She doesn't want to go. She doesn't want to move. She doesn't want to leave her family. She doesn't want to go to this new town. She doesn't want them to go off road because it's dangerous. She doesn't want them to stop. She doesn't want them to get out of the car. She doesn't want them to go into the abandoned music park. She doesn't want them to eat the food. Like every single step of the way is like far before anything remotely magical happens is about her helplessness because she's a child and the adults are making decisions. Mahito's mother dies in the opening moments of this movie and his father is mostly absent. There isn't an adult there dragging him places except when it comes time to go out to the country and and move into this house. And then he's exactly in the same boat as Chihiro. He doesn't want to go there. He doesn't want to upend his life. He doesn't want to go to school. And again, he's being dragged along by adults. But he, unlike Chihiro, doesn't get pulled into this magical realm. He outright ignores and just kind of in, in the spirit of his belligerence, pushes away everything that the adults want him to do in order to do what he wants to do. And and that pulls him into the world. I, I think that's just a really interesting difference.
1: I mean, the other thing they have in common is that both of these stories are kids in search of their parents or parental figures in, in some way. Or, or you know, it's, it's, I guess, I guess uh, Mikito is looking for both his stepmother and his mother, who's reputed to be there in, in some way. and And we find out, well, you know, we find out something um, <laughs> toward toward the end. Um, do those quests differ in, in any way?
0: I think that maybe Chihiro's quest to save her parents feels a little more like physical and literal and, and cohesive because we know where they are and we know that they're there and we know they exist. Mm-hmm. You know, they're pigs. They're in the pig house. They're going to be eaten at some point. Like all of these things are, are very simple and cut and dried. Whereas the question of whether his stepmother did actually go into this place, where she is, why she's there, what's happening to her, is all a big question mark. And the only reason we have to believe that his mother might be there is because the heron says it. And the heron is a liar. And there's there's the whole question of, are all herons liars? <laughs> If there's one thing that baffles me most in this movie and that I'm I'm hoping to find out from a second viewing, it's trying to figure out what the Heron's agenda is. Mm-hmm. Like he's the dynamic character in this movie. He's the one who goes through a coming of age journey that's both very physical and very emotional and very visible.
1: I find one of the most baffling sort of sections of the film is when you know, he just does his heel turn back. It's like I was never your friend. What are you talking about? And then, and then, Mahito. He's, then moments later, they're still kind of. You know, they're back together. They're they're pals again somehow, or something like pals.
3: Because he needs him to fix the the plug. Yeah, the right. Yeah. Mahito yeah.
1: has shot an arrow in him. <laughs> right. Then... Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, that I get. But I mean, but but Mahito's willingness to kind of go along with this and, and accept him as his friend again after that is is so uh mm. such a, so curious. Friend is not the word I would sure, use for okay. I, like. I,
0: I think he's very aware that yeah. he doesn't he doesn't like the heron, but he's also aware of sort of having having created a debt to him by like limiting him in this way. Like, I definitely took him fixing the heron's beak as the the first time as you're going to I'm going to do this thing for you, and then you're going to do a thing for me, and then the heron immediately tries to cheat him. At, but then comes back and is like no i need some more fixing and the fact that he he does it again without further negotiation i mean to me that's just pure comedy like that that whole setup and particularly the the shallowness of the the heel turn and the, the immediate reversal it, it's just funny you know it's it's just hilarious how petty uh, this character is. He, he's he's like like the frog or some of the other you know smaller pettier characters in in Spirited Away. He's not the villain at any point. He's just not cool enough to be the villain.
1: Can I can I just <laughs> go a little bigger picture here? Uh, I didn't really read much about this film before watching it. I kind of didn't want to know. I know in Japan it was kind of released with like no advance like anything <laughs> apart mm-hmm. from from some vague advertising. But I had a very different idea of what. <laughs> (laughs) movie called the boy and the heron would be like and it was not and the relationship between said boy and said heron and it was not this what did you think well, I, you know, I should have known better because it's Miyazaki, but I, perhaps mm. something a little more uh, directly, you know, a little did, more Black Stallion-ish than, than what we got. Did
3: you picture like a majestic scene of him riding on the back
1: of a heron? <laughs> was, uh, not not specifically, like... but, but but that was more in line with what I was, I was thinking just based yeah. on the title than that what I got. Yeah. And in, in Japan, it's it's titled How Do You Live?
2: Right. It's it's like, very, right. It's like so. Which in, is in, the name of like, that book. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The name of that book. Yeah, the
0: earliest information that we got about this movie was that he was adapting How Do You Live, which is a a, like a Japanese children's classic that I've read chunks of it. Uh, It was around the time the movie's title and and intention were first announced. Um, Algonquin translated it and published it in America for the first time. And it's. I don't know. I mean, it's. It's a very boys' life book of the '60s. You know, a, a no pig day, no pigs with die 30s, kind of. Yeah. No, but it 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 reads like the kind of thing that would have been uh, very popular in the '60s in the America. Is what boy, I'm saying. Boys' it's life like, magazine. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It it just it has that feeling of. A Day that No Pigs Would Die comes to mind in terms of, you know, young young boys are coming of age and like learning philosophy. But this one, maybe because it was written in the 30s, maybe because it's, it's Japanese, it just a lot of it seems a lot more abstract. You know, there are sections about sports and but like pl- the importance of playing sports. But there are also sections of looking up at the sky and, and considering life. And the more I read from this book and about this book, the more I was like, I don't know if a movie based on this book is going to be interesting at all. And even though it's titled after it, even though there's a point where he he literally picks up the book, uh, How Do You Live, in the movie, it has very little to do with it, apart from kind of being a book of philosophy about a young boy figuring himself out. I think
2: all that matters from the book, if the U.S. readers are kind of in- are interested is the, ma- the main thing is the title, right? Like the main thing is sort of like is sort of the title is the question that Mojito kind of has to face. For me, that felt like the most sort of the most important kind of existential connection because the plot stuff doesn't it doesn't factor in to my knowledge
0: what does factor in that really has me wondering how much we as as western audiences are missing we had somebody see the movie in japan when it came out in the middle of this year you know so it was a summer release for japan and review it at the time and he pointed to a couple of different Tales from Japanese folklore that he thinks were probably big influences here. One of them involves a a figure. It's very complicated. You know, you can you can dig into these these fables a lot, but ultimately it ends up being like just you know cultural knowledge that we didn't have. Like uh, somebody who doesn't who didn't grow up with the Bible and never read it, being told about like everything that happens in the Old Testament, just like as a single story. That's that's how some of these things read. But one of these myths is about an individual who usurps power, and then a bird is sent to him by the gods uh, to tell him to knock it off, and he kills it with a bow and arrow. And then the arrow flies up to heaven, but heaven throws it back to earth, and and it strikes him. You know, which there's certainly some resonance there. And another one is a very Cupid and Psyche story about a man who who marries a woman and she becomes pregnant and she goes into her delivery room and he's told he's not allowed to see her while she's there because it's forbidden. But he gets very curious and he peeks behind the curtain and he sees her as an uh, immense thrashing crocodile. And he's, you know, punished for his temerity. Like these things, you can see echoes of them in The Boy and the Heron. And it makes me wonder between the amount of it that's very symbolic versions of elements of Miyazaki's life and his own relationship with his son, potentially, and elements drawn from Japanese folklore that we're maybe not very familiar with for the most part. I just wonder how much else we're missing in terms of cultural context that Japanese audiences would be more familiar with, or in terms of coded symbolism that was very core to Miyazaki, and that if anybody asks him about,
3: he'll say, yeah, I like to draw clouds. Well, <laughs> and I think this is maybe a good time to bring up the fact that he doesn't really write the movies, or he doesn't really write scripts, you know? He he kind of draws the movies, you know? Like, they they, they come together in the storyboarding and the animation, which is not particularly conducive to, like, textual analysis, but does maybe allow for pulling at little strings without necessarily having to tie them all together into a a message or a, a moral, you know? I think it's a little more, to c- come back to this word, we keep using fluid, and that's the case in both Spirited Away and The Boy and the Heron, is that, like, the the message of the movie isn't necessarily in the plot it's in these kind of moments and how they unfold and kind of what you come away from them feeling but the the quote-unquote plots themselves are you can really only analyze them in the broadest strokes and i think it's notable that we keep coming back to like scenes and moments and feelings uh that we have during certain scenes more than like you know this is a direct metaphor for this and and this is a direct reference to this. Like it's all a little more again fluid than that.
0: Well speaking of that, a connection that I really want to dig into, we didn't talk at all in the segment we were just getting into Boy and the Heron about how this movie has visual elements that none of Miyazaki's other movies do. There are impressionistic scenes where characters like blur and melt and the backgrounds are, are messy and strange and everything is extremely subjective. And there are characters in Spirited Away that, you know, melt and change forms. In order to express their own emotional, you know, conditions or uh, experiences, but everything around them remains crisp and fixed and specific. The sequences in Boy and the Heron, where Mahito is, is running to his mother in the hospital and everything melts around him does not feel like a Miyazaki movie to me. It feels like something that his partner, Iso Takahata in uh, Studio Ghibli would have done and, and did do in some of his movies.
3: There, he there was, was moment where I was like, oh shoot, should we have done Grave of the Fireflies? <laughs> during that, that opening? <laughs>
0: yeah, it, uh, certainly fair in terms of like the time period being depicted and, and the emotions and t- to some degree the characters. But this is it's the the single thing I'm most curious about. I'm supposed to interview the the supervising animation director and I think that's the thing I most want to talk to him about is just is this Miyazaki's salute to Takahata who, you know, died a few years ago? Is is this him reflecting his relationship with a man who was much more experimental in terms of animation style than Miyazaki was. You know, Miyazaki pushed more and more and more towards this, like, beautiful, like, lush, vivid realism. And uh, Takahata pushed much more into very abstract directions where backgrounds would fall away and everything would become white or, you know, characters would become squiggly and extremely two-dimensional. I've never seen anything like those segments in a Miyazaki film. Eric, c- call me out. Am I wrong?
2: I'd be really curious to hear what, what what his animation director might might say about that sequence in particular. I'm like, I'm 99% sure that that sequence we're talking about is animated by Shinya Ohira, who uh, has worked on Miyazaki films before. Uh, he He is known for animating the scene in The Wind Rises where... The main character jiro is is like writing or drawing on like at his desk and the pages are kind Mm. of flying all around him and like you know it's like it's again like also very abstract and and very kind of like almost smeary he also animated the scene the the kid's story in the animatrix so it was directed by that short was directed by Shinichiro watanabe who directed cowboy bebop but it was animated at least in part by this guy shinio ohira and You know, you can kind of see like, you know, the way that he kind of like abstracts the forms, like he will, you know, one of his signatures is sort of like if you freeze frame it, maybe a character is running or in the case of a kid's story, the character is skateboarding and he will draw a leg, but the leg will be smeared and streaked. And like the freeze frame looks as if like it's missing its pieces. And then if you think about each frame in that, in that whole sequence, like that's all like kind of different frames. So it creates that kind of illusion of like, this is a form You know literally lacking parts right like and then and then that form lacking parts is in motion so you see a similar thing happening in the boy and the heron i'd be really curious if you're it's you're interviewing takashi honda yeah i'd be really curious to see what he says about that because it's the opening of his movie, right? Like it's it's the, and it's kind of like a, it's a scene that gets the, the boy in the harem returns to, like later on, like, you know, it, it opens and then you kind of see like another, like sort of like a, a there's a, rep- a reprise of it. So it's this incredibly important scene in the movie. And I'd be curious to see like what he asked of Shinya Ohira, what, you know, what, you know, if there are other animators involved who are not Shinya Ohira. It seems like a really important moment to entrust to another animator to get right or, or to, you know, to sort of change the style because I, you know, on rewatch, Mahito's form, you know, at the beginning of that sequence is solid, right? Like it, the character design is like fully, it's not in motion in the same way. And then there's a clear change and you see kind of like, you know, the, the running sequence begins and then you kind of see the you know, the characters kind of smear in that way
0: that is all really fascinating context and i am uh, i'm definitely going to take it on board
2: yeah <laughs>
0: i truly don't think of i mean it's it's not like i i think that miyazaki hand animates all of his films individually and and doesn't have a team uh that would be ridiculous but i i never think of them as having individual animators take over scenes the way, you know, the way, for instance, Disney works, or the way a lot of stop motion works, where you'll have a, a single animator taking point on a, a single sequence and, and manually handing it themselves.
2: I mean, it's difficult to identify because it like the way that it's all kind of composited together, like it's all one movie. Shin here is kind of known, he has like a bit of a reputation for like, you know, his style is so stylized, right? And so... It's interesting to see it kind of composited into a sequence where miyazaki or someone was like oh i want this to be extra dreamlike right i have got my own dreamlike vibe i want it to be extra i want you know and like and to entrust another animator to do that i mean i don't know if miyazaki storyboarded that and then was and then passed that to ohira like i don't know what the workflow was like right where he maybe he storyboarded it first because he storyboards the whole like his whole movie as far as i know and then maybe he passed it to ohira and said like hey like do what you do best, right? Like this is the vague template for how I want it to look or how I want this to move. But you you have your own style, like take, you know, go nuts. I have no idea what that sort of conversation was like, but it's interesting to think about
3: maybe this is not quite a contrast point but one of the things that stuck out to me a uh, uh, boy and the heron as far as the the look of it and the world is that Miyazaki worlds are often very like pastoral rural you know uh, the the environment is a, a you know a big recurring theme and interest for him and spirited away is a very sort of lush green place you know for for the most part with you know occasional bursts of polluted, River spirit uh, <laughs> mucking it up, but but in, and boy, and the heron certainly has some of that, especially when he's out in the real world. But then when he enters into this world, especially toward the end of the movie, you know, it's it becomes these like real kind of almost cold, stony, almost like sci-fi inflected feeling to some of the the spaces, and that just struck me as feeling a little. Unusual, especially when paired with Spirited Away, which just feels like kind of the apex of that warm um, um, agrarian Miyazaki movie feeling.
0: That said, there are moments in Boy and the Heron. There's recognizably Miyazaki moments, and one of the ones that really stood out to me in, in Boy and the Heron was where he he goes off with uh, Kiriko, mm-hmm. the young woman who is a, an aspect of an old woman in a complicated way. She lives in a what appears to be in, like an old pirate ship is my guess that's just completely overgrown with with plants and mosses and at one point he like goes off to find the bathroom and he he steps out on the bow of it and it's just this classic miyazaki silence moment where the camera is, is way way back and he's completely dwarfed in this landscape of green that's completely overgrown this you know like once wooden ship and it just has that feeling of like it's one of those miyazaki moments of like pastoralism through the lens of possibly a post-human world. And this is a world where humanity doesn't seem to have much of any kind of hold. Everything is at best sort of near human. The fact that he he steps out into this landscape that's just made by the complete overgrowing and and disappearance of what appears to be a human or humanoid artifact uh, was really striking to me because you know he he loves his symbols of mankind's demise and how the world doesn't need us and will roll on without us. And that moment in particular, just felt like a Miyazaki pastoral moment
2: in the kind of way that we've we see over and over in his movies. It reminded me of, I, I recently watched Future Boy Conan, which is like, you know, mm-hmm. his his first, I think Miyazaki and Takahata directed Loop in the Third Part One as like takeover directors basically, but like Future Boy Conan was like one of his first sort of like, you know, like I am directing this show, this is my job, I am the director projects and like it reminded me so much of that because that world is, you know, the world is co- sort of covered in water. It is a, it is very much like a post-apocalyptic You know humans have ruined this place and it has so many so many scenes where conan is just kind of like alone at least early on conan is sort of like alone and kind of also you know sort of staring out into the into the ocean kind of like wondering what to do or or trying to figure out like who he is who he is in the midst of all that before he then sort of takes action and so the boy and the heron maybe maybe one reason i thought it cohered so well is like it, it almost felt like a return to like one of his first protagonists whose entire series i just binged right <laughs> like it, it where he it's not that conan and 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 Mahito's stories are are the same but they have some somewhat similar character beats like very in the first or second episode his grandfather dies his his main caregiver and he has to then leave home to kind of like sort of chase his destiny but also protect a friend of his like save a, a sort of a mothering figure their kids so it's sort of like not really romantic, but, but very much a French, a friend figure. And so I don't know. There, it's funny to me how like, you know, Future Boy Conan is sort of like, it has, it had those pastoral moments about, about a, a sci-fi apocalyptic world. And this is maybe, you know, the first Miyazaki, like, you know, potentially alien movie that I can think of where like a, a rock has sort of smashed into the earth. It may be sentient and it's now a tower. And it sort of, it still manages to achieve similar feeling, right? Or, or tap into a similar feeling.
0: I mean, Nausicaa, the Valley of the Wind has a lot of that, that right. kind of sci-fi to it. And yeah. it's, it's another post-apocalyptic story, but it's one with a lot more sci-fi accoutrements than Future Boy Conan, just in terms of, you know, everybody flying around on, on hoverboards and the earth has kind of been overtaken by alien species and, and alien plants that just appear to be like outgrowths and evolutions of things that we have now. I think that there's some resonance, uh, like, I mean, the end of Boy in the Heron feels almost like it's got more resonance with uh, Annihilation than <laughs> any yeah. other uh, project. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, it, it does feel like there's, it, it's it's certainly coming from the same mind as Nausicaa, The Valley of the Wind, shall we say.
3: Well, just to bring it back to the other movie that we're actually talking about in in this pairing, as far as visual motifs that get repeated. I mean, Tasha, you already kind of mentioned the wide open expanse of, of water and the combination of that with sort of shadowy spirit figures that are just sort of like smudges of black you know like the sort of spirit boats pirate boats or whatever they they are just felt so analogous to the train through the water with the little shadow figures can we talk about the wara wara yet oh my god
2: (laughs) The Warawara.
0: The
3: Warawara are
0: kind of evocative. Like even though they're they're visually very different, they're they're kind of the meeting point between the Kodama and Princess Mononoke and the soot spirits Mm -hmm. in uh, both spirited away and in in Tortoro. and the sequence in Tortoro where the family moves into a home that's been abandoned for a long time so it's full of soot spirits and they have a family bath and they they speak loudly and laugh loudly in order to drive out the soot spirits and you see them like floating out of a window and like floating off into the night reminded me so much of the the sequence here that you're referencing in uh, boy and the
2: heron I love the warawara. I love that. I love how they move. I love how many of them there are. I do think that they're they're a lot like you know all these other kind of cute, weird little guys that he mm-hmm. just loves to draw over and over and over again. There may also be human souls. I mean, it's, yeah. yeah, they're human. Yeah, they're human souls. We get like a little that scene. We get a little bit of exposition. We learn that they're human souls, and then thirty seconds later pelicans they're start, murdered
3: by birds
2: yeah they, they, they just get <laughs> totally because miyazaki killed. doesn't like
3: birds eric
2: <laughs>
1: no the birds
2: the, the bird all the birds get redeemed guys the, pelicans the, are, the soul-eating birds the pelicans are not are they're there against their will and yeah. their voice yeah. you know in the in the english dub they'll be voiced by robert pattinson <laughs> willem defoe in their first role together since uh, the lighthouse two kings <laughs>
0: i gotta say the the english language cast for uh this this movie is phenomenal i am i am really surprised at like the number of like fairly prominent movie and tv stars they've gotten to voice characters who've got maybe two lines (laughs) like the parakeets (laughs) yeah it's it's Pretty exciting. I don't necessarily normally seek out dubs of movies that I've already watched in subbed form, but in this case, I I am, and and that happens with G Kids. I am am very very fond of their both the subbed and the dubbed versions of Ernest and Celestine are spectacular, but the English language cast for Ernest and Celestine is just recognizable heroes all the way down doing voices very unlike their normal personas and I love it I, and I can't wait to listen to the the dub for this one
2: yeah uh,
0: Dave Batista is the parakeet king the That's parakeet perfect. king is fun yeah. But I think he's going to be maybe even more fun with Dave Batista's voice.
3: So I want to go back to Eric's point about uh, how all the birds get redeemed, because I, I, I do want to hear that applied to the, the parakeets in, in particular. But I also want to talk about it uh, in relation to a, another connection between these movies, which is, I mean, it's kind of two related uh, connections we have down here, which is villain and villain-adjacent figures becoming allies, and then sort of the quote-unquote good and bad aspects kind of contained in, in one. You know, we talked about that kind of at length uh, with Spirited Away, but I think probably the the various bird characters are the, the closest we have to villain characters or potentially villain characters that maybe... Get redeemed. Also, uh, Mojito's dad kind of sucks, but <laughs> yeah. he, he's well intentioned, though. I think, particularly at the end yeah, of the movie, that's true. That, that's true. Yeah, he doesn't realize he sucks. So, um, but uh, Eric, please tell me how the parakeets get redeemed. <laughs> well, the parakeet king does not get redeemed. Okay.
2: In the background of basically every scene with the parakeets, look, the parakeets. I, I think they're just. I think they're all just trying to live their lives and eat food. <laughs> And in the in especially in the background where you see like they're like parakeet colony, they're all just Mm -hmm. doing things that like, you know, normal people do like we all do. They're just like making food. They're like cooking they're cooking things up for themselves. They're like, you know, they're they're like cracking eggs into like little bowls and things like that. And it's like, you know, are are you are you just cracking like your unborn fetus into, into a bowl right now? Like I think that they're I, re- I really do think that he loves these birds. I'm not, I'm not.
0: <laughs> there's that sequence. I mean, when, when Mojito is in the... Uh, it, basically, uh, it's sort of a dungeon slash kitchen. And where there's a parakeet shar- <laughs> sharpening the blade that's going to kill him. And there's just piles of what appears to be like human meat piled up in the in the background like they're all of those parakeets first of all are meat eaters which is creepy and second of all are very very sloppy about the people that they butcher like oh, yeah. if no- they're so hungry maybe they shouldn't waste so much human meat
2: they got mm. a d rating for sure like it's, it's-
0: <laughs> you're saying that uh the the parakeet kitchen is not michelin start is what i'm hearing
2: it's probably had so many health code violations that the king had to take, the fascist king had to change the laws. To, to. But I, I, do, I do think that the parakeets are just played for comedy the entire time. Like, you know, they're, marvel- they're marveling at their ancestors, right? In another part of the tower, you know, birds just flying by and they're like, they're crying like, you know, crocodile tears mm-hmm. over, you know, seeing these, these primordial for them, you know, unevolved bird forms. And to some degree like, I think they're they're just like a hive mind, right? Like I think they're they're kind of like I think all of the birds in the movie with the exception of the parakeet king are actually like and and the heron don't have that much agency. They're kind of just living their lives. The pelicans didn't decide to to go, right? Like they got they got brought there. You know, we got we have that that one pelican, that older pelican who like tragically passes and Mejito has to bury him. The heron becomes like, you know, the you know, probably the you know, the hero of the movie with more agency on, in some ways. I really, I really do love these birds. They're like my favorite part of the movie.
0: <laughs> when I when I wrote down that one of the connections was villains or villain adjacent creatures uh, becoming, you know, becoming allies, I was thinking more than anything of the gray heron because he, as I say, I am still very unclear who he's working for or what his agenda is at the beginning of the movie, and I, I think a second viewing will help clear that up. But he is a pretty inimical figure, you know, who Mahito actively tries to kill a bunch. And he's certainly not a a friend or an ally, but he kind of becomes that in a way that many Miyazaki villains do via the application of like authentic emotion and and friendship and it's pretty much the same thing that happens to giant baby and yubaba bird yeah. in uh in the first movie you know they undergo a physical transformation that presages an emotional transformation and their relationship to the protagonist changes as their their bodies change so i was thinking here to some degree like yubaba is an outright villain And even at the end of the movie, she's not real happy to see Chihiro beat her riddle and and save her pig family. She's been defanged at that point as a villain, but she's still not really on Chihiro's side 100%. But that's kind of unusual for Miyazaki movies where the villains usually kind of come around. In this case, I, I was thinking of the, the baby and the bird and their parallel to the, the gray heron more than anything else. Although, once again, in both movies, just a whole lot of transformation, a whole lot of yeah. changing form, a whole lot of form doesn't matter. And like this six foot five humanoid bird is really the exact same thing as like this little shoulder parakeet. And it's just sort of a matter, almost a matter of
1: perspective
0: more than anything else very Alice in Wonderland, I think in all cases.
1: Which kind of brings us all the way back to Spirited Away, a very Alice in Wonderland inspired movie. We may have talked this through thoroughly, although I, I hope we're going to get some feedback on this. I'd love to to spend a little more time with The Boy and the Heron in particular and like hear some other thoughts and bring it up on a future episode. But for now, we're going to say goodbye to both these fantastical worlds. Spirited Away is currently streaming on Max. It's also available on Blu-ray and DVD. The Boy and the Heron is now in theaters in both dubbed and subtitled versions finally it's time to recommend a film or film-related item that complements this set of episodes we call it your next picture show in the hopes it'll put some interesting choices on your radar eric you are have kept an eye on animation in 2023 can you obviously the boy and the heron uh, is going to be on your best of the year list can you tell us about one at least one other film that's going to be on there uh, yeah, besides The Boy and the Heron, that will be definitely make the list.
2: Suzume, which is Makoto Shinkai's newest film. I think it's his best film, like, ever. I think, you know, you may recognize him from uh, Your Name, which came out in 2016. Uh, Suzume is kind of a sort of, it's a road trip, it's a road movie where a young girl has to close portals throughout the entirety of Japan that are threatening to smash uh, and and cause earthquakes throughout the entire country it's a brilliant movie it's kind of done with a photorealistic animated style and i'm just so excited i've having seen it in theaters i'm just so excited to get it on blu-ray or on streaming when once it becomes available
0: and it's uh the only anime i've ever seen where one of the characters is a chair
2: the greatest piece of character design this year i think is uh sota playing the chair
0: just this three-legged child's chair yeah <laughs>
1: I a lot too. I, I went into it not knowing uh, much, like *Boy in the Hair*. I didn't know much about it, what it was about, and then you know, suddenly there's a chair <laughs> hopping around, and I realized you know whatever I thought it was going to be, it's not going to be that.
0: It's a surreal movie. I mean, it's. I, I, I'm not sure that I would call it his best film. It's. I would, I think, weathering with you maybe hit me a little harder for some reasons. But both of those films are very, very concerned with humanity's relationship to the planet, which you know is a preoccupation in a lot of movies these days, and especially the animated movies and symbolic movies. But it's the degree to which Suzume is just kind of about the a uh, kind of like last ditch effort to save the planet. It puts us up for some, uh, some very emotional sequences and a lot, of, a lot of big agonizing about how lonely the fight to save the planet can be, especially when most people are indifferent to or completely unaware of the threat. It's, it's really interesting in that regard and the symbolism that it finds to express all of that in a way that, that turns it into a fable and yet also very recognizable.
3: Okay, as someone who hasn't seen this uh, film yet, I would like to know a where I can see it now. And also, Eric, uh, when can our listeners read the rest of your best animation of the year list?
2: So Suzume is available on Crunchyroll to stream in both the sub and dub versions. And the best animation of the year list is dropping on Vulture.com on Friday, December 8th coincidentally, also the date The Boy and the Heron comes out. So enjoy.
1: That's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show, but we'll be back next week with another set of episodes. Genevieve, do you want to tell us about those episodes? Sure thing. It's easy enough to
3: describe Poor Things, Yorgos Lanthimos's first feature film since 2018's Oscar winner The Favorite. Lanthimos' adaptation of Alistair Gray's novel of the same name is essentially a dark comic riff on Mary Shelley's gothic novel Frankenstein, except that this time, the dead flesh brought to life as a new person is a woman, and her process in claiming her own identity and autonomy ties into her sex life as much as it links to her intellectual life. But that description really won't prepare anyone for the manic, strange, and gleefully transgressive experience of Poor Things, a movie built around an aesthetic of violent steampunk grotesquerie and full of images and performances that aren't easy to pin down or to forget. Naturally, we wanted to pair it with the original James Whale movie version of Frankenstein, a classic that helped define horror movies and movie monster imagery. On the other hand, Poor Things might have more in common with Wales' follow-up, Bride of Frankenstein, in terms of its bigger themes. So we're stitching all three of these movies together into an unholy creation of our own. We'll be back next time with a pairing of Poor Things and
1: both of Wales' Frankenstein movies. For now, we welcome your feedback on Spirited Away, The Boy and the Herod, and anything else film-related that you'd like to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. Before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha? I
0: am the film and streaming editor at Polygon.com. I have pretty much given up on Twitter for reasons that people should be aware of if they follow the news at all. (laughs) But I'm on Blue Sky at Tasha Robinson. Uh, Genevieve, what about you?
3: I am the TV editor at vulture.com um, and I, I I have yet to post on Blue Sky but I did update my profile so I'm making baby steps to actually be Aww. posting there. It's going to happen. I just have to put a lot of thought into what my first post is, is going to be but I do, I do exist on there now.
0: So. You know, I spent like a good six weeks on Blue Sky not actually saying anything because I felt like my shirt first post should be momentous. Yep, that's where I'm at. And then eventually it just kind of became <laughs> yeah, uh, eh, I feel like I have something to say today. It, it wait, wait until it comes naturally and then it doesn't need to be a big deal.
3: I'm also like like messing around with threads a little bit. I think I've done like two threads at, th- at this point, so I, I, I don't know. I'm sticking my toe back into the the social media uh, world. but uh, Eric, where can people find you? Obviously uh, at vulture.com
2: Yes, <laughs> I, I'm the streamliner editor at vulture.com where I also write about animation. I am also on the service formerly known as Twitter at E underscore VB underscore and I'm also on blue sky and my first blue sky post was an attempt at posting a gif and gifs (laughs) don't work on blue sky so (laughs) that was very embarrassing for me but I am on there still Keith where can people find you
1: I am a freelance writer. You can find my work at a bunch of different places, like Vulture, for one, and and TV Guide, sometimes The Ringer, and some other places. But mostly, you can find me these days at uh, The Reveal, uh, at thereveal.substack.com, which is a newsletter I I I, I write, I co-write with our absent co-host, Scott Tobias. You can find me on Blue Sky pretty much exclusively at KFIT3000. Uh, you can find our you know Scott Tobias on all kinds of places, uh, <laughs> at X, at Scott, under score Tobias. Uh, On Blue Sky is Scott Tobias with a bunch of T's in the middle. Uh, He is also a freelance writer who contributes to a bunch of different places, such as the New York Times. And again, our newsletter is The Reveal at thereveal.substack.com. And we're always happy to have new subscribers. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net on x at at next picture pod and on blue sky at at the next picture show get bonus content and open discussion at patreon.com slash next picture show and as always we appreciate your rating and reviews on apple podcasts or spotify or wherever you listen to the show thanks to dan the bake jakes for his assistance producing this podcast the next picture show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts please tune in next time